you're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Hospitals are amazing places. They're emblems of the modern medical technology that saves and improves our lives in countless ways every day. But if you've ever roamed the halls of a hospital in the middle of the night, with its shiny, echoey surfaces, background hum of anxiety, and distant monitors chiming like beacons of peril, you're in no rush to return. But if you must, you'll want someone like Shoshana Ungerleiter there, keeping an eye on things. I am a hospital-based internal medicine physician, and I practice in San Francisco. So I'm a nocturnist. The hospitalists that work at night, we were called nocturnists. Shoshana came to medicine in a roundabout way. First and foremost, I always knew from being a very young child that I wanted to be in service of others. The question at first was which others she would be in service to. And I found myself actually toward the end of college studying marine biology. And I was applying to PhD programs and doing a bunch of research. I found myself walking into the lab every morning to check on my little intertidal mollusks, these limpets that I was studying. I was doing an animal behavior experiment and I would talk to them. And I, a few months into that, was like, they're never gonna talk back. So maybe I need to be working with human beings. I think I'll get more out of that. So Shoshana left the world of mollusks behind. I went to medical school in Portland, Oregon, and I moved to San Francisco for my residency training here at California Pacific Medical Center, and I finished in 2013. Medical school and residency are known to be less than conducive to healthy sleep hygiene. I would say that I've always been a lover of sleep. I need like nine hours of sleep a night to feel well. It really wasn't until probably late in medical school, probably my my third or my fourth year, that I realized that I was not going to be getting a ton of sleep for the next several years. I think conceptually I knew that that was going to be the case, but it, it didn't really sink in until I was actually doing it and seeing patients on the wards and needing to be up super late. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So coffee was really my friend. And um, I think a lot also that the adrenaline of having an emergent situation, you know, play out in front of you, you sort of are naturally kind of amped up and, and not feeling sleepy. But I definitely had many a night where I was like nodding off at the computer trying to finish my patient notes. The practice of back-to-back shifts with no sleep for medical residents has long been an issue. There are concerns about the well-being of the residents and also possible negative effects on patients of having their doctors basically running on fumes. It's pretty controversial, um, this issue of of resident and trainee work hours. Um, It used to be that doctors in training would work unlimited hours. So you could spend 120 hours a week in the hospital, and nobody would think twice about that. In the early 2000s, a major law was passed such that now uh, we're not allowed to work more than 80 hours a week. And since then, the resident work hours have been even further restricted by the governing body in America of of residency training. It's a complicated issue. There are some very good reasons for having doctors in training work extended shifts. I think the long hours are mostly about you only have a set number of years to be in a training environment before you go out and get a real job and make money. And 
they want to pack as many patient care hours as possible into that time frame so that you really know what you're doing. And then I also think the long hours are about continuity of care. The more times that you hand off patient care to one of your colleagues, the more opportunity there is for mistakes to be made and things to get missed. So I'm personally torn because I feel like there are issues when, when people are up all night long. And when I trained, so only a few years ago, we were still doing 30 hour shifts. Um, that's not the case anymore, but there's something to be said for really spending the time, whether it's, you know, a full, a full day and a full night. And then the next day of rounding, or it's just an overnight shift of, of knowing, of knowing your patients really well and, and seeing them through the course of an illness or an episode where they have an acute need. That said, I'm, I'm a very big believer in resident and medical student wellness. We know that the rates of, of burnout in medicine are astronomically high, along with rates of depression and suicide and substance abuse. So I think we need to find the balance of making sure that people are taking care of themselves while knowing that it's, it is really important to get your training hours in so that when you're off on your own, you know what you're doing. While you may need to be in a hospital to deal with serious medical issues, as a patient, there's a lot about the experience that is less than ideal. So the hospital is like the worst possible place to get sleep and to heal. It's because most patients have like a team of doctors that are taking care of them. And then they have nurses and then medical assistants. And while all these people are just doing their jobs, the patient's rest is often not factored into the equation. And I always feel really bad about that, so I try not to wake up people unless I have to. It's something they were absolutely missing the mark on. I mean, if we, if we know that sleep is helpful for people when they're healing, uh, we really do a terrible job of it. And then there's just the reality that hospitals at night can be creepy. I've often walked through the halls, you know, obviously many times walked through the halls at night, and it's kind of dark and more quiet. So in a sense, that's good for resting. However, you're in a new place um, with a lot of like strangers, right? And sometimes you're even in a room with a stranger who there's just like a little curtain in between you. You don't know this person. You don't know where, you know, it's it's like being surrounded by, by people you've never met. And often you're in a situation, right? Where you don't always know the outcome. There's a lot of uncertainty with being ill. So that alone, I think, is really kind of scary. It's definitely scarier in the hospital at night, too, because we don't have, you know, the typical manpower or woman power of, uh, of, of all the providers in the hospital all night long. There's only a handful of doctors who are at your disposal. Obviously, if there's like a massive emergency, we'll call the right people in. But I could see that being really frightening for people. Despite the fact that Shoshana is not a night owl, once she discovered the hospital night shift, she was hooked. It's so strange. So my second year of residency, I was assigned, as we all were, to a bunch of night float. And what that means is you only work at night. You come into the hospital around 5 or 6 p.m. And then you work with a team of other residents and maybe medical students and work 
the night shift until about eight in the morning when you get to go home. And I really was dreading that, having to do that for several weeks at a time. And then I loved it. I really like the work at night. So it's not that I like being up all night, that'll never be me. It's more that at night you get to really focus on doing one thing at a time. Discovering that she loved working at night had unforeseen benefits. So nobody wants to work at night. You know, it turns out the, the way that the hospital is set up is really designed for doctors because they wanna be home by six o'clock, have dinner with their families and, and sleep in their own beds. So I'm unique in that I enjoy the work at night and I get to sort of take my pick of where I wanna work and um, the nights I work because it's, you know, they need me. <laughs> I feel totally lucky that for whatever reason, I love, love working at night and it gives me a lot more flexibility. I only work the night shift. I've never worked a day job as a doctor. So for me, it's 9 p.m. to about 8.30 a.m. And I carry a bunch of pagers and I'm very, very busy. And then when I'm off, I'm completely off. The work life of the nocturnist looks very different from that of the daytime doctor, who has specialists on site and a full complement of support staff. There is a swing shift person who's with me until about midnight or 1 a.m. and then they go home and I am alone. It's just me and the residents. I take care of all of the adults in the hospital, which at our hospital is only adults. It's hundreds and hundreds of people. I don't know the bed count, I probably should off the top of my head, but it's uh, six full floors of, of a hospital. So at 8 or 9 p.m., Shoshana shows up at the hospital, gets handed the pager, maybe checks on patients she saw the night before, and then she waits to see who needs to be admitted to the hospital from the ER. Our, our ER is just slammed every single night. We usually quiet down around six or seven in the morning. But sometimes we're, you know, the, the ER has 40 people in it at three in the morning. And you're like, where did all these people come from? And typically at night, you're just admitting new patients to the hospital. So very often these patients come in through the emergency room and then need to be admitted to the hospital, which is our job as, as hospitalists, is to take care of the people that have to stay over at night in the hospital, doctors are a little bit more on their own, and Shoshana discovered early on that there were things about that that really appealed to her. I really liked seeing new patients, seeing undifferentiated patients, meaning that I was sort of the detective and having to figure out what was wrong with them for the first time, as opposed to the daytime work, which is much more often rounding on existing patients in the hospital, seeing how they're doing, um, checking on the labs and the tests and maybe calling their family members or their outpatient doctor to get some more information. Um, that's less interesting to me. That love of detective work came in handy shortly after starting her job at the hospital. So my first year out of residency, I was uh, working nights, of course, as a hospitalist. And it was a typical night. You know, I showed up, the pager started buzzing, and I headed down to the ER. And this particular patient was the second patient that I heard about in the night, and it was about eight o'clock. 
So I spoke to the ER doctor who was telling me the case and he sounded kind of perplexed and a little bit anxious about it, which I thought was odd. She was a younger patient actually, kind of my age, so early 30s and had no medical problems, was in the ER complaining of excruciating pain in her hip and her upper leg just on one side. And I thought to myself, well, this doesn't sound like an internal medicine problem. You know, this is not somebody with 15 chronic medical problems and end-stage cancer or uh, a bad infection that I should be worried about. So I kind of pushed back a little bit on the ER doctor. I'm like, you're telling me that this young 30s woman should come into the hospital for pain in her hip and there's nothing else wrong with her? So he says, yeah, you know, I've... I've looked through her labs. I, uh, I imaged her leg and her hip, nothing there. I examined her, of course, nothing wrong. I don't see anything abnormal, but she's just in excruciating pain and we're giving her the strongest opiate pain medication and it's not touching her pain. So, and a few other red flags go off. I'm like, well, could she just be drug seeking? Unfortunately, we have a lot of patients who are addicted to substances and come in the hospital and, and kind of make up a story. Of course, you don't want to assume that of anybody, but when the story fits, you have to think about it. So I said, okay, I'll go see her. So I walk into the uh, exam room and she's there laying on the gurney and then her, her husband is at the bedside and her parents. And I look at these people and I'm like, huh, they kind of like look like me, you know, and what my family would look like if I was not feeling well. This was a mark against the drug-seeking hypothesis. Generally, people who are looking to score a fix don't bring their concerned parents. Typically not. And her parents looked really worried, and so did her husband, and she's kind of laying there on the bed, writhing around, and we start chatting and I you know I'm trying to get a history of what's what's gone on and she says well gosh I woke up with the flu yesterday you know I work in financial services so I you know tried to go to work but I just felt so crummy and achy and then this afternoon started having this really severe pain right here and she points to like her right hip and I like open the gown like carefully and I'm looking and I'm like Okay, I, I don't see anything. Are you, is there a rash? Is there, have you fallen? Did you go have a terrible ski accident or anything kind of crazy? She says, no, nothing. And I said, it has ever happened to you before? And she said, no. And she didn't take any medications, had had no you know, past medical problems. Usually somebody gives you a clue, right? Or has a medical history that leads you down a path. And with her, it was wide open. So, I just started, you know, asking all sorts of questions. Um, have you traveled recently? Have you been vomiting? And while I'm talking to her, she's literally like yelling out in pain. So I'm going through everything she's telling me and thinking about in my mind, gosh, what could this possibly be? Could she have like the, the prodrome of, of, of zoster, of shingles, causing severe pain before the rash shows up? And so of course I examine her 
and I, you know, make sure that neurologically there's nothing that appears to be abnormal. I mean, literally this, this woman is like the picture of health. I mean, she's very, very fit. She's, you know, again, not, not, uh, not giving me anything to kind of point toward a diagnosis. And I find out that uh, she hadn't told her family yet, but that she was pregnant. So she was very, very early in pregnancy. And of course, as an internist, we get worried when we have to take care of pregnant people because it's not our field. And we have to think about not only our patient, but also the baby. So I'm a little bit limited there. I thought originally, well, you know, maybe I should see if she has a bulging disc in her back and that's what's causing such severe pain. It didn't quite look like that, but so I excuse myself from the room and I decide to admit her to the hospital for pain control, knowing that in the back of my mind, it just didn't seem right. There had to be some reason, of course, why this was happening. So I actually called the on-call obstetrician to see if he had any ideas. And when I called him, he did not. He said, well, I'm, I'm, glad it's, I'm glad it's you, not me having to worry about this. This is nothing related to pregnancy. So I said, oh gosh, okay. And I went about the rest of my night and it was a really busy night and I couldn't stop thinking about her. I even actually, you know, asked another ER doctor, something I've never done before, consulted them back and said, listen, like I, I'm at a loss here. I do not know what's going on with her. We did another ultrasound an imaging test of the leg to make sure there wasn't like a blood clot or something behaving oddly. And that was negative. So a few hours go by and I decided to call upstairs to the floor where she, her room was and, and talk to the nurse just to check in on her. She says she's still in pain and she's awake and alert. We're just loading her full of IV uh, medication, really strong stuff. And this isn't an, even in touching her pain. Pain medicine it, within itself is not dangerous when you're pregnant. Obviously, we like to avoid giving medicine that's not needed when people are pregnant, but for her, I wasn't necessarily worried about that in particular. So I'm thinking more about this and I, it just isn't, it isn't sitting right with me. I know that I'm missing something. I just have this like gnawing feeling. Shoshana has that gnawing feeling that underlies almost every solved mystery you've ever heard of the feeling a good detective knows to pay attention to. And I remember my board exam. So when you finish residency, you take the, the boards and whatever your specialty is. For me, it's internal medicine. And I had had a question, uh, a case on, on the exam of somebody who had pain out of proportion to their examination. And I remembered that and thought about this very kind of rare entity called necrotizing fasciitis. And that's basically a, a flesh-eating bacterial infection. It's really bad luck if you get that because um, it within hours basically turns the tissue inside your body into liquid. It just melts it away, eats it away. If that sounds dramatic and horrible, it's because it is. Only normally, this gruesome bacterial infection is visible to the naked eye. Usually it is. It's a surgical emergency. 
in my head I was like, gosh, well, she doesn't fit the picture of somebody that would be susceptible to this. You know, it's usually um, people with diabetes or who, who don't have a, an immune system that's competent or that wasn't her at all. And so it popped into my mind and then I kind of pushed it away. I was like, that's so silly. So another hour goes by and I see another patient in the ER and then I call up again to the floor and I said to the nurse, listen, go, go take a peek at her. Um, just go look at the legs. Look, compare the right leg that's, you know, in pain to the left and tell me what you think. So she takes the cordless phone and she's telling me, well, it looks the same. I don't see any redness. I don't see any swelling. Those are the things we would tend to look for. So I said, get out a tape measure. So we have these paper tape measures. We actually usually measure pregnant bellies with them. And I had her measure the circumference of the upper right thigh and compare it to the left. And it turned out that the right was about a centimeter and a half bigger. And I thought, well, that's curious. I guess I need to keep thinking, what could this possibly be? And so I actually went up to the floor, left the ER and, and went to go see her myself. And she looked the same. I mean, she was just still in a ton of pain and, and really getting worried that we had no clue what was wrong with her, as was I. And I said, gosh, let's, let's image Let's image that right uh, upper leg and, and hip again. I realized that, of course, she couldn't get a CT scan, our typical imaging modality, because she's pregnant. So you can't get that radiation. Um, it's unsafe for the, for the baby. And it turns out at night, the MRI techs aren't there. So while you can get a CT scan or an X-ray at night in most hospitals, MRIs are a different thing. And you need a specialized you know, technician to, to run the machine and to help the patients. And so I called the radiologist on call. They're the gatekeeper of all of these imaging techniques. And I told him the story. I'd never met the guy, so we were just talking on the phone and he, he wasn't buying uh, that, that we needed uh, another, another imaging test. He said, listen, you're telling me that this young and healthy woman who happens to be pregnant has something scary that requires an MRI tonight? Like, that's just ridiculous. I said, I know, I agree with you, but what if we miss something like necrotizing fasciitis? Or what if she has a disc that's bulging into her spinal cord and this is gonna cause huge problems for her? He said, I, I don't agree. I just think you're, you're wrong. And uh, I, I, I can't call in my MRI techs it's going to cost so much money. They're going to be angry with me. But there was that gnawing feeling, and Shoshana couldn't shake it. And I was like, I'm sorry, we have to do this. I really felt like I had to push back on this guy. Um, even though he was a much more seasoned physician, I was brand new working in this hospital. So somehow I talked him into it. He said, fine, I'll call him in. It's going to be like another hour. I said, OK. So I went back down to the ER and saw some more patients because we were still really busy. And about an hour and a half later, I get a page and I call back and it's the radiologist. And he said, oh my God, you were right. She has necrotizing fasciitis. He's like, I've never seen this before presenting like this. I'm so sorry, I doubted you. Please accept my apology. 
So I said, okay, thanks, bye. Because I knew I had to call the surgeons immediately to come in. She needed to be in the operating room, you know, hours ago. Remember, this patient had come into the ER around 8 p.m. And it was about 2.30 in the morning when this happens. People have to be cut open right away and tend to need many, many surgeries in order to clear out all of the bad tissue that's been eaten away and get rid of the, get rid of all of that and then also be put on very strong antibiotics. It's 2.30 in the morning, which is not an ideal time to have necrotizing fasciitis. Well, there is never a good time to have flesh-eating bacteria, but I immediately started her on broad-spectrum IV antibiotics, which is part of the treatment, and I called the cell phones of our plastic surgeon on call and our general surgeon. They were in the hospital within 11 minutes, and she was in the operating room, you know, 20 minutes later. I had a chance to run back upstairs and, and tell her that was an interesting conversation. She actually was really thankful that I had figured out what was wrong. I don't think she quite realized the scope of the problem. And I was both uh, really scared for her, really relieved that I'd figured it out, and then also so excited that I had made the diagnosis like of my career. <laughs> I felt like if I retired tomorrow from medicine, like I could be happy that I caught this, you know, and um, which is sort of a weird thing to say. But so she went to the operating room and had a, a big, big surgery. They filleted open her right leg and she was in the hospital for about three weeks. She had nine surgeries and she did fine. And she kept her leg and she kept her baby and I um, haven't talked to her recently, but I am pretty confident she's doing well. So despite the lack of a full daytime roster of medical staff, in this particular case, the fact that it was the middle of the night may have been an incredible stroke of luck. The relative quiet provided a space to let this mysterious problem turn over in the back of Shoshana's mind. I always say medicine is this crazy job, like many others, of just being pulled in a million different directions. All these distractions, pagers, you know, beeping alarms, people needing you, wanting to talk to you, whatever. And at night, it's busy, but it's less so. So it's lucky that she came in at night, actually. If anything, I think it would have gone fallen by the wayside, because during the day, you're so busy, you know, seeing so many patients if you have an admission in the ER, you kind of don't think twice about it. You're like, well, I'll deal with this tomorrow and figure out what's wrong and let it sit overnight. And letting something like necrotizing fasciitis sit overnight can have disastrous consequences. It's very fast. So minutes are actually critical in this illness. The bugs that, that do this damage, the tissue moves so quickly, much more quickly than anything else I could even, you know, think of or imagine. So time was definitely of the essence, and I actually ran into the plastic surgeon a few weeks later. She said, were you the one that caught that neck fash? I was like, yeah, you know, it was kind of lucky actually that that was the case, but um, she said, that's amazing. She was like, uh, none of your colleagues would have caught that, so good for you, you know, you saved her. What saved her was Shoshana paying attention to that gnawing feeling that she had, and also keeping an eye out for zebras. Yeah, zebra is kind of a weird, rare case. So in medicine, we have many, many 
common diagnoses. And so people always like to say common things are common. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. So that's one thing I always remember from, from medical school. You know, it's always good to keep the weird, rare things in the back of your mind just in case, but you never see them, right? And I did. They never did figure out where the zebra came from, how this otherwise young, healthy woman contracted flesh-eating bacteria. Nope. It's possible that she was slightly immunosuppressed from being pregnant. That's not to say that people who are pregnant, you know, are susceptible often to this kind of thing. So we don't, we don't really know. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. You can find us at nocturnepodcast.org, on Twitter at Nocturne Podcast, and on Facebook. Drop us a line at any of those places. We'd love to hear from you, even if it's just to let us know that this episode kept you from falling asleep after you listen to it. Nocturne is produced with support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project, which provides resources to creative storytellers around the world, for which we love them. Nocturne is proud to be a member of The Herd, a collective of smart and beautiful storytelling podcasts. Find out more at theherdradio.com. That's H-E-A-R-D. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.